You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. All right, Psalm 24. Uh, as we think about the Psalms, I've given you here, and I give you this every week, a summary of the book of Psalms. What's the book of Psalms? How would you summarize the book of Psalms in one sentence if you're trying to kind of nail the theme of the book of Psalms? Kendall Easley says this, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. So the Psalms, 150 of them, remind us that whatever you're going through in life, whether you're on a mountaintop or you're going through a valley, God is worthy of your praise, He's worthy of your worship, and He's worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your confidence. You can trust Him no matter what you are going through. And then I like the second quote from John Piper because John Piper picks up on the idea that um, or the, the reality that the Psalms are actually songs, they're hymns. This is basically the Hebrew hymn book. That's what we have here in the book of Psalms. And so he, he writes, the Psalms are songs, they are poems, they are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. We love the Psalms because it connects with us at an emotional level. I have yet to find a believer in Christ that says, you know, I just, the Psalms just don't do it for me. I just, I don't really care for them. I don't like them that much. Uh, of course, if you, if you love the Lord and you're reading the Psalms and they are speaking to you at that emotional level, uh, there, there's a connection there and, and it moves you and stirs your heart. And that's what they're intended to do. These are hymns. They are songs uh, for worship. And we've made it to Psalm 24. Interesting psalm about the king of glory. So notice there, we're going to read it together. I'm going to pray, then we'll jump in. But notice what it says there. Psalm 24 in the small letters, a psalm of David. So this is King David uh, who wrote this psalm. He wrote many of the psalms. It says... The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he, the Lord, has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the, the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Let's pray together. Father, we pause in this moment to ask for your blessing, 
to ask for your help, Lord, as we study your word. Lord, by the power of the Spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we would see the truths of Scripture and be moved by those truths and be moved to respond to those truths. God, I pray that because of what we study tonight, our lives will be transformed and that you would just do it, Lord, by your grace and for your glory. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross, the empty tomb. And we lift this prayer up to you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're just kind of observing some patterns in this psalm, you notice that the phrase king of glory is used five times. Just kind of read through it. You can see the repetition of this phrase, king of glory, king of glory, uh, king of glory. And there's some some, uh, interesting verses starting in verse 7 about gates and doors and the king of glory coming in. And you ask, well, what's that all about? What, what, what's the context, the setting of this psalm? Well, most commentators connect this psalm with David bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Perhaps when he brought it into Jerusalem for the first time, or maybe after a battle when it was taken out to, to uh, go before the people of Israel, when it comes back into the city of Jerusalem. This is a recognition that the Ark of the Covenant is coming through the gates to go back to its resting place, which was the the temple structure in Jerusalem or on Mount Zion. So that's the the context. And and it's a big deal because the Ark of the Covenant was this... this, um, I mean, you know what it was. You've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. It It was a box. It was a wooden box. And it was covered in gold, and it had a golden lid with golden cherubim on top, their wings pointing toward one another. And in that box that God told Moses to lead in building, he, he had them put the Ten Commandments in that box, and some manna and Aaron's rod. Uh, there were some things in this box. And when the box was situated in the Holy of Holies, and the veil was put over the front of the Holy of Holies, and the, the, the people of Israel under the leadership of the high priests fulfilled the ceremonial law, God would meet with his people and his presence, his manifest presence, his glory uh, would come down on top of that box. He would, he would manifest his presence on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And the, the Ark of the Covenant came to symbolize God's presence. So when the Ark of the Covenant is coming in through the gates, it's as if God's coming in through the gates, right? And so it says there, Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O anxious doors, that the king of glory may come in. The ark's coming in. It symbolizes the presence of God. So God is coming in to the city. So that's the context of this psalm. And there are really just two questions I want to answer tonight, pose and then answer, uh, that are vital questions that help us to understand what this psalm is all about. The first question is this. Who is this king of glory? It's used five times. Who is this king of glory? And the reason it's a vital question is because David asks it. Look what he says there in verse 8. Who is this king of glory? Verse 10, who is this king of glory? Who is the one that we are worshiping as as we realize this ark symbolizes his presence? Whose presence are we celebrating? Who, who are we fixing our attention on? Who is this king of glory? Where there's some answers to that question found right here in this psalm. So let me give you some answers as to who this king of glory is, this one who 
uh, David through the psalm is calling to, to worship. First of all, the king of glory is the creator of everything. The creator of everything. Look what it says there uh, in verse 2. It says, he has founded it. It is the world. We'll talk about that verse 1 in just a minute. He has founded it upon the seas, established it upon the river. So it speaks there of God, of God creating and forming the world. He is the creator of everything, which is a really big deal. You know, when you, people, people, you know, at the beginning of the year say, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. They get a Bible reading plan, and it usually starts in Genesis. And they open to Genesis. They read Genesis 1. In the beginning, God made the heavens and earth. They just keep on reading, and they read right on through chapter 1 and chapter, chapter 3, and they, they miss, I believe, the import of Genesis 1-1. They just read, I've heard that before, I know that. But think about how stunning it is that before there was anything, God made everything out of nothing. Now just, just chew on that for a minute. Before there was anything, God made everything out of nothing. That is breathtaking power, right? I'm hungry right now, and I can't say taco, and there be a taco, right? I got to wait for a Wednesday night for, okay, Wednesday night meal, right, Lee? I can't just say taco. I don't have that power. I can't, I can't create something out of nothing. Now, if you bring me a taco shell and some cheese, and some, I can put it together, right? But, but I can't make something out of nothing. God made everything, all the matter, all of the, 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 the parts of this universe. God made it out of nothing. He created the heavens and the earth. So this king of glory that's, that, that, that's being worshipped as the Ark of the Covenant comes through the, the, the gates of the city. He's the creator of everything. I mean, you ought to give him your attention. If he made everything, if, if this is true, if he made everything out of nothing, you ought, to, you ought to give him your attention. You ought to give him your focus. I like what Warren Wiersbe writes. Of all the heavenly bodies created by the Lord... The earth, and he talks about founding the earth upon the seas and establishing upon the rivers. The earth is the one he has chosen to be his own special sphere of activity. Clarence Benson called the earth the theater of the universe. For on it the Lord demonstrated his love in what Dorothy Sayers called the greatest drama ever staged. He chose a planet, a people, and a land, and there he sent his son to live, to minister, to die, to be raised from the dead, that lost sinners might be saved. So he created everything, and then he made this special place called the earth. He founded it upon the rivers and the seas. It, it's here. It's, we live on it. It's this globe that we live on. It's this, this planet, and he, he put this earth into place. He founded it, established it, and on the earth, the drama of redemption unfolds. On the earth, God sent his son to die for the sins of the world. So he's the creator of everything, the heavens and the earth. That's who the king of glory is. Secondly, not only is he the creator of everything, he's the owner of everything. The owner of everything. I mean, that just, that's just how it works. If you made everything, you own it, right? So look what it says there in verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it or dwell therein. It's all his. It all belongs to him. He is the owner of everything. The creator is the one who is, watch this, who establishes reality, who establishes truth, who 
forms categories of what is right and acceptable and what is wrong and unacceptable. In other words, the owner calls the shots. The creator calls the shots. He's the one who is sovereign and ruling and reigning. And our role is to recognize his ownership over our lives. So he's the creator of everything. He's the owner of everything. It all belongs to him. Third, he's the proper object of worship. He's the proper object of worship. So look what it says in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And we'll talk about the answer to that question in just a few minutes. But the idea of verse 3 is this. Uh, People need to go to the temple where the temple complex was on the hill of Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And they need to go to worship the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant would be brought to the temple, be put in the Holy of Holies. They would carry out the ceremonial sacrificial law. And God again would, would manifest his presence and meet with his people. And they're saying there that there are people that want to ascend the hill. They want to go to the temple to worship him as it should be. God is the proper object of worship. You've heard me say this before. I've been all around the world. I have been in places where I've seen people fashion an idol with their own hands and then set it on a stand and worship that thing they made with their hands. And see, the idea here is this. We didn't make God. He made us. He made everything around us. He owns the earth, the fullness thereof. So he desires and deserves our worship. And I would say this, if you worship anyone else apart from the one true creator, the one true God, it's false worship. It's idol worship. And all through the Bible, idol worship is, is, uh, is demeaned by the Lord. Number three, he is mighty. He is mighty. Who is this king of glory? He is mighty. Look what it says in verse 8. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. And use the word mighty again. The Lord, mighty in battle. So this speaks of the strength of God. The uh, theological term is uh, the omnipotence of God. Omnipotence of God. God has all power. And when you talk about God's omnipotence, you need to understand it means that power is inherent within God. In other words, he's not striving or clamoring for power. He just has it at his disposal and, and all power. He's not, he's not trying to gain power or get more powerful or get stronger. He just has all power at his disposal and he uses it for his perfect ends. He is mighty. Next, he is the God of presence. Look in verse 9. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The, again, the Ark of the Covenant symbolized the presence of God. So when David's calling the gates to pay attention because the ark's coming in, he's saying, hey, the presence of God is coming into this city. He is a God who desires to dwell with his people. He is the God of presence. And by the way, that's a big deal. The presence of God is a big deal. And the Bible teaches that for those that know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, God's presence is an uh, ever-present reality. Uh, an unfailing reality. God will never leave you nor forsake you. You get his presence all of the time. And David here is recognizing the presence of God. He's a God who desires 
to dwell with his um, people, which is a which is a big deal. That isn't it, isn't it neat that the creator of the universe who made you desires to be with you? Like he he wants to be with you. He wants to dwell with he wants to be present in your life. And that's a pretty cool reality, right? Next, he is the God who reigns with his angelic army. Look in verse 10. Who is this king of glory? Whose presence are we recognizing? Who's the one we are focusing on? Who are we worshiping? Who's this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. See that phrase, the Lord of hosts. That means he's the Lord of the angelic host, the angelic army, uh, the God who reigns with his angelic army. So God is a God of omnipotence, and God exercises his authority and exercises his rule and his reign through, often, his angelic army. And you say, well, we can't see that angelic army. That doesn't mean the angelic army is not real. Just because you can't see angels doesn't mean angels. Angels are just as real as the person sitting beside you. But they're in the unseen realm. I love the story in 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Kings chapter 6, where uh, the Midianites are uh, they're fed up with Elisha because he, God keeps telling Elisha what their battle plans are, and Elisha tells the king of Israel, and they're ready for them. And uh, it's, you know, it's ultimate intelligence, right? They, the, 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 army knows, uh, the army of Israel knows exactly what's going on because God keeps telling Elisha, and the prophet tells the king. And so the Midianites say, we just need to take out Elisha. I mean, he's, he's, telling, he's telling the army our battle scene. Well, let's kill the prophet. And so there's this scene where the Midianite army uh, comes to kill the preacher, Elisha. And it's just Elisha and his servant. There's an entire army coming. And the servant says, uh-oh, we're in trouble. There's an army and there's just two of us. We're in trouble. Elisha says, we're not in trouble. And the servant says, what do you mean we're not in trouble? There's an army and you're a preacher and this doesn't turn out well. And Elisha prays that God would open his eyes and in, in, on the hillside surrounding that valley, uh, the servant is able to see the angelic army. Chariots of fire, angels, warriors of fire. And he sees uh, with physical eyes the angel army of God. And he's like, oh, I get it. Okay. We don't have to be scared. And then God blinds the Midianite army and he rescues Elisha and his servant. And it's a, it's a really powerful story. But what I love about that story is this. The angelic army was there before he saw them. But God just allowed him to see that army. And that, that, that reality of seeing with his physical eyes the, the armies of fire, the host, the Lord of hosts, gave him great confidence in that moment. And so this God is the God who reigns with his angelic army. What an awesome God. So who is this king of glory? He's creator of everything. He's the owner of everything. He's the proper object of worship. He's mighty. He's the God of presence. He's the God who reigns with his angelic army. But here's the major takeaway. You ready? He is Jesus. He is Jesus. This this God is the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And Jesus is fully God. So when it's talking here about the King of glory, it's talking about Jesus as fully God. Now here's something we know based upon Jewish rabbinic history. And this is fascinating. This psalm, Psalm 24 
would be sung or recited on the first day of the week, on Sunday mornings. That was a, it was a Jewish tradition. So in Herod's temple in the first century, when they would get together on Sunday mornings, they would read, sing Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. Lord, mighty in battle. And think about them singing that song on the Sunday before Jesus Christ was crucified. And on that Sunday, when they're singing Psalm 24, Jesus comes riding in to Jerusalem, right? Palm Sunday. And they've got palm branches, and they're saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. This is the Messiah, the one sent from God. And I don't think it's an accident that God had him ride in on the day when the Jews are singing Psalm 24. In other words, when, when Jesus rode into town, the king of glory was riding into town. This one mentioned in Psalm 24, the, the creator, the sustainer, the owner, the object of worship, the mighty one, the God of presence, the God who reigns with his angelic army. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. And so this king of glory is King Jesus. But here's the second question that is that is asked earlier in the psalm in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? So again, the ark's coming into the city. It's going to be set up at the temple. And God's people are going to go worship at the temple. Now, what kind of people should go to worship God? Or, or what are the characteristics, uh, characteristics of those who go to the temple to 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 bow their hearts and their knees in the presence of God? What's the answer? The answer is true worshipers. True worshipers. Who does God want coming to worship him? True worshipers. Do you remember what Jesus said over in John chapter 4? He and the one that well are having a theological discussion, which I think she's just changing the subject because he called her out on some some sin issues in her life. He wanted to heal her. He wanted to save her. He wanted to redeem her, but he needed to deal with some sin in her life. When he brought up the sin, she brought up a theological discussion. Well, it's interesting. I think you're a prophet. Let's talk about uh, whether we should worship on Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion. And the Samaritans say this, the Jews say this. And she brings this theological discussion. And Jesus just directly goes to, listen, God is looking for true worshipers, people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? True worshipers. Now, how does someone become a true worshiper? Or let me ask you like this. What are the characteristics of true worshipers? People who worship God in spirit and in truth. All right? Let me give the answers. First of all, true worshipers, transformed lives show up in their behavior. True worshipers, transformed lives show up in their behavior. Look what it says there in verse 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who, who shall stand in his holy place? Who belongs here? Who belongs here to worship God? Look what it says. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, someone who's not just coming. Now watch this. Not just coming to God to give him lip service. It's someone whose life has truly been transformed. 
And transformation is a characteristic of their life. God condemns throughout the Scriptures people that come to worship Him with their lips only. It's constant throughout the Scriptures. In the book of Isaiah, repeat in the New Testament, but the Lord says... You come to worship me with your lips while your hearts are far from me. You come to worship me with your lips, but there's really no, there's really no transformation in your life. It's, it's obvious by the way you're living your life. You're really not serious about worshiping me. You're just going through the motions. You're just giving me lip service, but there's been no transformation. True worshipers, the kind of worshiper God is looking for, are those whose transformed lives show up in their behavior. Wor- watch this. Worship is more than just singing songs and listening to sermons. Worship is your response to what God has done in and through your life. That's what worship is. It's, it, it, it's a response saying, God, you have been so good, so merciful, so gracious in light of what you have done for me. My only response could be surrender. I surrender to you, and I want you to have your way in me and change the way I live. Change my behavior. True worshipers transformed lives show up in their um, behavior. And so, if you go to worship God, and it's only your lips, and it's not showing up in your life, God wants you to deal with with your life. He wants you to deal with your behavior. He wants to see a real fundamental change by his grace and by the spirit's work in your life in accordance with his word. Secondly, and related, true worshipers' hearts line up with their external praise. Look in verse 4. He who has clean hands, that's what your hands do, behavior, and a pure heart, that's what's going on in your heart on the inside. Look what he says next. Who does not lift up his soul to what is uh, false, so true worshipers' hearts line up with their external praise. They're, they're not just giving lip service. Their hearts are in it. Their hearts are engaged. True worshipers' hearts line up with their external praise. Next, true worshipers shun evil. Look in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. In other words, they're not... The, the, the true worshiper is not someone that is giving lip service to God while approving things that are ungodly, approving things that are evil. They, 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 they want to they they see righteousness uh, win the day because it, it, it glorifies God. And I may have shared this illustration with you before. And this kind of illustration sounds like it's something that happened back in 1960, but this happened about 10 years ago. But I, I was pastoring in Mississippi, and I got word through different channels, and it became a big news story and all of that. But uh, in, in, in a, a Mississippi Baptist church uh, got in some controversy because uh, the pastor had been reaching out in the community, and some African-American um, young uh, kids had been saved. They had been, they'd given their lives to Jesus. The pastor shared the gospel, got saved. And the pastor wanted to baptize them. They wanted to be baptized. Baptized, and some of the people in the church stood up and said they will not be baptized in our church. Reason? Color of their skin. And, and, I, and I think about that, and I think about those people on a Sunday morning singing praises to God. How great thou art! While refusing to let an African-American child get baptized in their baptistry? Do you see how inconsistent that is? 
They're giving lip service to God while, while, uh, while holding on to things that are evil, things that are, that are wrong, that are ungodly. And it just ought not to be that way. You know, I've preached on racism before, and uh, I've had people say, well, listen, uh, that's the way I was raised. Well, you were raised wrong. Now, listen, now I'm not saying everything your parents taught you was wrong, but I'm telling you, if you were taught racism, and I grew up in a small southern town, I know what that's all about. If you were taught racism, that was wrong. And you need to break that cycle now and say, I'm not going to perpetuate it. Racism is, listen, when God created the heavens and the earth, he created people. And every person that's ever been created was created in the image of God, right? White, black, whatever color, they're creating the image of God. And when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible doesn't say he died for white people. Right? He says, it, my Bible says 1 John 2, he died for the sins of the world. So I'm just telling you, if, if you know, you're going to worship, but if, you're, if, you're, if there's hatred in your heart, racism, prejudice, God wants you to get, deal with that and then come back and worship him. Does that make sense? All right. I feel better now. I got that from my chest. All right. So true worshipers shun evil. They don't hold on to evil. Uh, they, they, uh, they shun it. True worshipers have received God's righteousness by faith. Because here's the deal. When you read verse 4... He who has clean hands and a pure heart, he does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. Hey, question. Have you ever had unclean hands? Raise your hand. I have. you ever done anything you shouldn't have done? Raise your hand. Yeah, me. All right, I got it. Um, you ever had an impure heart? Raise your hand. Yeah, me too. Have you ever lifted up your soul to something that is false, ungodly? Raise your hand. Yeah. Have you ever, uh, you, ever, you ever given lip service to God while approving things that are ungodly? Raise your hand. I have. So you read this and go, okay, well, if, this is the, if, this is, if these are characteristics of true worshipers, man, I don't fit the bill. I've blown it, right? Which, by the way, we're going to talk about that Sunday. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Realize that you bring nothing to the table. Spoiler alert. You say, you say, I, you say, I, you say I've blown it. I've blown it. But there is a way to be right with God. God knows you've blown it. God knows you fall short. So God has made a way for you to be reconciled to him and to be made righteous, have a right standing with him, and then to have a power that resides in you to change you and make you more like Jesus. That's what righteousness is all about. And that righteousness comes by faith. So look what it says there in verse 4. It says, He who has a clean hands, pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So this person, this true worshiper, has received, notice that, blessing and righteousness. The word receive speaks of a gift. All right? They've received something from God to give them right standing with God. Blessing and righteousness from the God of his salvation. I believe this speaks of salvation by faith. That when you place your faith in the Lord, he gives you righteousness as a standing before him. He reconciles you. He forgives you of your sin and brings you into a relationship with himself. But then when you get saved by faith, he gives you the Holy Spirit to begin to change you so that your practice comes into greater conformity with your position of 
righteousness. Let me tell you why I think he's talking about faith here. Look what it says there in uh, verse 4. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false. In other words, the true worshiper is not lifting up his soul to the wrong object. Uh, the, the wrong God, right? To lift up the soul means to trust or believe. Because look what it says down in chapter 25, verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And then look at the next phrase. Oh my God, in you I, what? Trust. So the lifting up the soul is trusting God, placing your faith in God. So the true worshiper says, I will not lift up my soul to false gods. And, and the implication is, I'm lifting up my soul to you, God. I'm trusting you. I'm placing my faith in you. This is a person of faith. This is a person who believes God, and that belief in God and his word and his redemption through his son is reckoned or credited to that person as righteousness. And again, this is a gift. Right standing with God, a relationship with God is a gift, not one we deserve. Because look what it says. He will receive blessing from the Lord, righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of who? Now, I've talked about this already. But whenever you see the phrase, God of Jacob, you should, you should think, ding, 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 grace. Because God, uh, Jacob was a, he was a shyster. He was a trickster. He was a manipulator. He was not a nice guy. Okay, he, he was not, he was not, he, you wouldn't want to have him as your neighbor. But Jacob got saved. He met God. God saved him. He placed his faith in the one true God and God changed him. I can show you all that. I don't have time to do it tonight. I can show you how Jacob's life changed after he wrestled with God. That's another sermon for another day. But he changed and he received that right standing with God as a gift. And so here's the point. If God can be the God of Jacob, he can, he can be the God of anybody. If you just receive his, his, his gift, right? You receive his righteousness and his blessing by believing in his son, Jesus Christ. So uh, this verse, this, this idea of true worshiper speaks of those who have placed their faith in the Lord and have a right standing with him. I like the way Charles Spurgeon says it. Who is he that can gaze upon the Holy One? and can abide in the blaze of his glory. Certainly none may venture to commune with God upon the footing of the law. In other words, when we try to keep God's standards and look at our lives and say, oh, we've blown it. But grace can make us meet or acceptable to behold the vision of the divine presence. In other words, if you receive God's grace through Jesus Christ, you can come into the presence of God and have a relationship with him. That, that's what this passage is talking about. We don't deserve it, but we receive it as a gift. And then once you're reconciled to God, he begins to change you from the inside out. But let me give you one more thought about true worshipers. Characteristics of true worshipers. True worshipers transform lives, show up in their behavior. True worshipers' hearts line up with their external praise. True worshipers shun evil. True worshipers have received God's righteousness by faith. And then last, true worshipers, this is so good, don't just seek God's hands. They seek God's face. Look what it says in verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him. And look what it says. Who seek the face of the God of Jacob. When, you, when we see the, the idea of the face of God, we're speaking of the person of God. So to, to seek the face of God means 
You're seeking him. You want to know him in a deeper, more compelling way. You want more of God in your life. You want to go deeper in your relationship and communion and fellowship with God. And true worshipers don't just seek his hands. They seek his face. You know, many people want the provision of God. They want God for what he's going to give them. But they really don't desire God. They don't desire the presence of God. They just desire his gifts, his blessings. And this verse reminds us that true worshipers don't just come looking for what God can give us. True worshipers come because God is worthy of our worship. and He is glorious and he deserves our praise. And we should seek him and, and desire to, to know him more. I like the way that Paul said over in uh, Philippians 3, he said, uh, speaking of Jesus, he said, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to the image of his death. In other words, I, I want to go through whatever it require, whatever's required to know Jesus better. I want to know him more. So true worshipers don't just seek God's hands. They seek God's face. Let me ask you a question. In your prayer life, in your personal worship, in your day-to-day living, do you come to God just to be with him? Or do you only come to God to get something from his hand? Are you seeking, are you seeking God's face? Are you telling him in your prayer life, in your pray, are you telling him how wonderful he is? How beautiful he is? How transcendent he is? How glorious he is? Are you praising him for who he is and what, what he's done? Are you thanking him for all that he's done in your life? Or is it just, hey God, here I am. I need this, 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 and this. See you tomorrow. That's how a lot of people treat God. We should seek God's face, truly worship him, truly desire to be closer to him. And let me just give you just a real practical thing here that helps me to seek God's face. You ready? Real practical. And by the way, men struggle with this one more than ladies. I really think that. It helps me to just express my love for God, to say, I love you. I love you. Lord, I love you. For who you are, what you've done. I love, when's, the, when's the last time you told God you loved him? You may love his gifts, but do you love him? You may love the blessing of his hands, but do you love him? Do you love gazing at his face? Do you love pondering his glory? Do you love him? When's the last time, I'm not asking for a show of hands or an answer. When's the last time you told God, I love you? I read an article recently, and uh, it really encouraged me, and it challenged me as well. But it was an article. I can't remember who, uh, who wrote it. But it was an article, and it said, uh, there's one word that can change your prayer life. Would you be interested in knowing one word that can change your prayer life? Would you be, do, would you, would you be interested? Some of you are like, not really. Can we, uh, can we call it a night, Wade? You've been going for a while. Can we? One, wait, one word that can change your prayer life. Do you want to know that one word? The word was the word to, T-O-O. And the article said, in my prayer life, I've been saying to God, I love you too. Recognizing that before we ever loved him, he first loved us. What the Bible says, 
that God loved us first. So let me just encourage you, just seeking God's face, being this kind of true worshiper, talking about Psalm 24. In your prayer life, would you just try it? And just, just maybe, maybe tomorrow morning you're alone with God, maybe you're in your vehicle on your way to work, you're at your desk or in your living room or whatever, wherever you meet with God. Would you just, would you just say, God, I, I love you too. And that'll help you to, to seek his face and, and, and not just the blessings of his hand. Amen? Let me read you this final quote and we'll be through. ESV Study Bible, in commenting on Psalm 24, says this, and this is such a powerful quote. The psalm asserts the astounding idea that the God who created and owns everything is the very same God into whose presence the faithful worshiper enters because of the covenant with Israel. In other words, the God who made everything, if you believe in Him and trust His promises and are reconciled to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, you get to be in His presence. You get to know Him personally. And that is an astounding reality. You get to have a personal relationship with the God who made everything from nothing before there was anything. You get to know Him personally and get to experience a love relationship with Him. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.